So this is our second episode of the Ukrainian CEO show podcast that helps Ukrainian entrepreneurs thrive during the wartime and recession. And uh, today we have a special guest from Chicago, Jay Sven, entrepreneur who bootstrapped and sold his tech consultancy and then grew the merge company to the capitalization of $500 million. Hello, Jay, and thank you for coming. Hi, Volo. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Jay, can you please tell a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. Uh, well, to start, I'm husband of 17 years to my wife, Gina. We have uh, five kids. Uh, we live here in Chicago. My oldest is in high school. She's 15 and my youngest is six. So we've got a... And, two big dogs. So we got a crazy household. Professionally, uh, I've been in the technology services industry my whole career. I started at a large company that was called Anderson Consulting, now as Accenture, as a software engineer. So I've been a you know, software engineer by trade. And then I started a firm called Solstice here in Chicago in 2001. And we were a software engineering boutique uh, working with uh, enterprise customers. And uh, over the years, you know, we, we pivoted that business to focus more purely on digital and product development, cloud modernization. Um, I scaled it to roughly 400 folks and then sold it to a British company, worked for another couple of years scaling the business, and then uh, was asked to go run the parent organization. So moved my family to London, ran the parent organization for a number of years where we merged uh, a number of the businesses that were in the the portfolio to form what is now Kin and Carta. And then we also kind of restructured and sold some non-strategic assets. So through that journey, I got to see a lot of different businesses. We ended up acquiring six more businesses and integrating them. So, you know, I was fortunate to learn a lot and seeing how different tech services businesses succeeded and what they had in common and also the ones that struggled, what, what they had in common. And so trying to package all that up now into a masterclass that I'm putting out for free and just kind of the top 10 things I've learned and then investing and advising on other early stage tech services companies. Great journey. And uh, you've grown the Solstice from one to 400 employees. And also you work the CEO of Kincarta, a big enterprise company with headcount of uh, thousands of uh, employees. Uh, what is the difference uh, between running a tech consultancy when you have less than 20 employees, you're just starting 20 to 100, 100 to 1000 and 1000 plus? Can you please tell us a bit more about this? A lot of differences. But, you know, I, I think if I had to summarize, you know, in the early days as an entrepreneur and as a founder, you pretty much do everything. You know, you have your hands in everything. And a lot of your leadership comes from from doing you know, from being involved, helping make decisions, you know, showing people the right way to do things, maybe through your behaviors or through craft or through setting an example doesn't really change. But what does change, I think, as the firm scales and you bring in more leaders into the organization to kind of take over different pieces and parts, you move from leading by doing into leading by serving and empowering. And I've kind of always looked at the larger the firm got, the less I was involved in making decisions and the less I was involved in doing the day-to-day -day things and the more I was involved in kind of coaching and empowering and encouraging others, you know, particularly those on my leadership team. Because if you don't do that, if you don't let go in a way, um, then, it, then you become a constraint for the business. And so that's what I see, you know, a lot of firms you know, you'll see a lot of firms that kind of top out around this hundred person mark, you know, where they'll scale up to about, you know, a hundred people and just kind of stay there. You know, ironically, it's because of the founder that they get to that point. 
because usually it's a very successful founder that can get a firm to that scale, but it's also the fault of the founder to not get past it. And so there's a big transition that happens around that point. And um, it really is that move from leading by doing to leading by serving and empowering. I know some founders, some uh, entrepreneurs, investors, uh, they could fund this uh, controversial. Like I talked uh, recently to an entrepreneur from Ukraine and uh, he was like, it's more not about the founder or not about the entrepreneur, but about the market. So he said uh, literally like 90% of success is the market, like where, where you work. For example, if a founder is stuck on this position where he can't grow any further, so he got this uh, 100 uh, employees. But for example, if he, he is working on a very small market, he's working hard, but he can't make the market bigger. So do you have any thoughts about this point? Um, I, I think there's probably some truth in that in terms of, you know, acknowledging the size of the market. But, you know, if we're talking about something like technology services, you know, it's a $2 trillion market. <laughs> so it's plenty big enough. And so I think, you know, it is important that you focus on an area where the market is growing or kind of values particular expertise. It makes it much easier to grow. But uh, when you're small, it's not necessarily the market that's the problem. It might be a product market fit that's the issue. There may be other reasons why you're having, you know, difficult time scaling. But, uh, you know, at least in my sector, the size of the market is there. It's more about how do you differentiate in it and the culture you build and is it defensible and differentiated? Well, I think I think I would agree that you need a market that has opportunity for, for growth in it, I guess, just depending on the sector. There are a lot of opportunities out there from a market standpoint. So it's more about the fit and the ability to scale within that market. Uh, is that is the bigger challenge usually and also many young founders a friend of mine uh, was talking to me recently about this topic they tend to boast about their size of their workforce like how many employees they have they often believe that having a larger number this is like greater success for them is this a reliable metric to measure success and can you share your insights on this yeah I, you know i think it, it depends when you're talking about the services industry so you know professional services like consulting firms or agencies or even lawyers or accountants you know, those, those professional services companies scale with their employee base because the employees are the product. You know, I don't know about boasting, but if you're trying to communicate the size of your business and without maybe giving explicit revenue numbers or explicit profit numbers, and if it's a professional services company, then the size of the workforce is somewhat telling of, of how big the company is, you know, how much money it makes. If that's what's, you know, someone's trying to communicate, you know, a size or scale. But for other companies, that may not be an indicator of success for sure. I mean, if you're a product company, you know, there was a product company here in Chicago that, you know, scaled up very quickly, almost had 1500 employees. But, you know, fast forward, you know, four years later, and there are 150 people and they're struggling. And, and the reality was the product never really found its, its fit. They scaled, you know, they scaled the employee base ahead of the demand for the product. And that's not smart. And that wasn't a sign of success in their case. So I think it's, it's it all depends on what you're trying to communicate in the industry that you're in. And then, you know, also when we talk about measuring success, what does that mean to the person that's communicating? What does that mean to the founder? It may not be size. Size may not be the end goal. It may be, it may be lifestyle. It may be impact. 
in a particular sector, maybe expertise that you know they're proud of. It may be their responsibility and the way they run the business and their, their social responsibility. So, you know, it all depends on I think what matters to the founder. But in the services business, headcount is usually equates to revenue and size. I think that's that's the reality there. That specific person with whom I discussed it, he's a young founder, around 25 years old. And when he was uh, just 20, he started front-end development agency. He grew this team from zero to 40 employees. It was uh, really fast for him. And uh, sometimes he were like, okay, I don't really need this employee, but I will hire him because I need bigger headcount. After a while, he had this uh, painful experience where the cash flow wasn't going to the company and he had to fire people. Mm -hmm. This painful experience yeah. gave him a mindset right now that he is like, we will never be bigger than 100, but we will be the best in front-end development. So mm -hmm. I think his perspective is like he wants to become the expert like the best agency maybe like a boutique agency and then when he talks like the best he means not like best for the size or revenue but expertise yeah it sounds like that was a tough lesson learned i would definitely advise anyone that's kind of got a services business or a tech services business not to scale headcount ahead of demand I think we have a responsibility when we hire people to make sure we have enough work for them to do. And, and it's not to say that there aren't situations where companies have to lay people off or they're not going to survive. I just think as leaders, we need to do everything we can to avoid that from ever happening. It's a big responsibility to hire somebody. I think, you know, one of the lessons I preach is to always run the business at a 20% profit margin. Sometimes you'll hear suggestions of just not worrying about profitability and going for growth at all costs. And I think that's irresponsible. I mean, I think you have to grow a responsible business that can produce a responsible profit. So when you do have those swings, maybe when the projects do go away, you've got some cushion to be able to ramp back up instead of, you know, being in a situation where you're all of a sudden quickly losing money. So I'm always a fan of measured responsible growth. Now I want to talk about differentiation, finding a niche. You talked about this a lot on your social media, on your YouTube channel. And in one of your episodes, in your masterclass, you said that the company, they can differentiate themselves either focusing on technology or industry. Are there any other attributes you know for differentiation? And uh, could you please provide a few examples of companies you know that identify the highly effective differentiation? strategy and experienced significant growth after implementing this strategy? So when you're small, I think it's really important to focus and to pick something that you're going to be the best in the world at. That focus in finding that niche is, is really important in the early days in order to scale, in order to differentiate against the big guys that do everything. And so there's different ways to do that. There's not just one way to do it. One way is through craft. Craft is a skill set. There's some organizations that have grown up being, being known as being the best in the world at design. IDEO is a great example of that. IDEO has a great global brand that's known for just incredible design. And they apply design to a lot of different domains, but they live it. You know, they have a design university that people can sign up for. And they, you know, they have a non-for-profit charity where they donate their design work to causes and they have tons of thought leadership and authors and people that promote the tenets of strong design. And they use that and, and we're able to scale up 
you know, to thousands of employees just being the best in the world at that. ThoughtWorks is a great example that did the same thing for engineering. You know, they were best in the world at software engineering. That's how they went to market and they had tools and thought leaders and authors and all these things that kind of promoted and they built the brand around being the best in the world at, at software engineering. And so craft is one, one of those areas where I think a company can differentiate, even if it's small. You know, another area is, is a platform. So like pick a software cloud or, or a SaaS company and basically say, hey, I'm going to be the best in the world at implementing this technology. And then you're really growing on the back of their sales force. And so it's probably the easiest way to scale if you pick the right force, if you pick the right company that is scaling rapidly and needs talent that understands their technology. And there's companies like SADA, which are experts in Google. There's companies like Aperio that were experts in Salesforce. You know, now you've got a lot of different new platforms coming out, new AI platforms, new automation platforms, new data platforms that rapidly growing. So that is another way to differentiate being the best in the world at, at implementing um, a particular company's technology. And then sector is another one, you know, being the best in the world in financial services or being the best in the world at retail or government. There's a lot of companies that have kind of scaled up with that expertise. Whatever you start with doesn't mean you can't broaden out later. I mean, for Solstice, we really got our broke through when we decided to focus on mobile, but this was back in 2009 before there were many mobile boutiques. And we were going to be the best in the world at building apps. And, and we were. We were one of the few that focused on it. And we scaled up very rapidly. By the time we got to 2015, we needed to broaden out in order to keep growing. So we, you know, we opened up new service lines at that point. But for that six years, you know, it allowed us to go from 50 people to almost 350 people just being the best in the world at, at mobile. So there's different strategies there, but I do think picking something instead of trying to be everything is really important. In your opinion, uh, what are the top three uh, technologies platforms and the maybe top uh, three uh, sectors that are uh, not yet overwhelmed and have a big potential and are growing fast right now for a tech consultancy firm to pick and start focusing? I'll kind of tell you what my opinion is in relation to maybe what's been happening over the last 10 years. So right now, there's a lot of companies are still talking about digital transformation and they want to digitally transform their organizations, which really just means leveraging technology more at the core of their business instead of as, you know, some outskirt IT function, like becoming truly software enabled. This really started to take hold in kind of the late 2000s. And then the real opportunity was all around the front end customer experience. So building multi-channel websites, building apps, building new customer experiences, and then ultimately new digital products for companies. It was really about the software and the front end of the user experience. That That is where the the biggest opportunity was then. That, that opportunity, opportunity still exists today. It's just more crowded. And then what we saw in the 2010s is the middleware became a constraint and companies wanted to move from their data centers to the cloud. And so there was a lot of opportunity around cloud enabling software and moving software to become more cloud native or cloud enabled. And so there was a huge rise of firms that focused on helping companies move to the cloud. And that is still a huge market. 
but again, more crowded. Now, I think the opportunity is going further back in the stack is in the data side. And so it's helping companies rationalize their data, their data platforms, their data pipelines, so they then can do things like automation, AI, and get more insights on their business. And so that is, I think, the next frontier of budgets that are really opening up. I don't think there's many companies that are focused in that space right now. There's plenty of room, I'd call it a blue ocean, but data, AI, and automation, including things like RPA, are, I think, the hottest areas. Not the only areas, but probably the hottest areas right now. Let's imagine that there is a founder. His firm was doing web development for a while, and he decides to listen to our tip and uh, find a niche. For example, he decides to start focusing on blockchain for insurance companies. He doesn't know anything about blockchain and about the needs of uh, insurance companies. What should he do? then and uh, what was the process in your company when you were just starting exploring new niches as i understand at uh, solstice you haven't started with a mobile from day one and uh, then you realize the mobile is a big opportunity how did you started serving your clients with this new technology did you found a founder how have you found the founder and uh, what was your story yeah great question so first thing i going back to your friend's suggestion you need to ensure the market's there. So I think that's important um, in understanding, you know, are there a lot of insurance companies that are looking for blockchain help? Like, let's just make sure that that is true first. Even if they're pilot or innovation level projects right now, if that's true, that's great. That means that there's an opportunity in a growing market. The way that we did it and the way that I would like for these emerging technologies or when a firm is, is just moving into, you know, what I call a blue ocean space, this is where craft and differentiating on craft really can make a difference. For, for us, for example, when we pivoted into mobile, we were gonna become the experts at mobile. What We didn't have all the case studies. We didn't have all the customers to show, like, look at all the apps we built. We were just starting, but we put a class together and we started teaching people how to code in mobile. We started offering that to our clients, like, hey, if you've got some developers that are interested in learning how to code in mobile, we put a class together. We will come teach them or we will teach them for you. And we looked at that not as a way you know, of um, putting ourselves out of a job as much as showcasing our expertise and generating interest inside those companies, those potential clients of commissioning projects in that domain. And that's exactly what happened. We were putting out a lot of thought leadership on how to code in mobile, how to build apps, how to introduce DevOps into a mobile environment, those sorts of things. And so... What ended up happening is when our clients saw that we were doing all this work and they decided, you know what, we're going to do a little mobile experiment, maybe build an app. We were the first person people they called because they were convinced that we knew what we were doing. And we did. We did know what we were doing. We just didn't have all the case studies. Once we got those projects coming in and they started off as small because they're like proof of concepts or innovation projects. Now, all of a sudden, we started to build up all these case studies. And so then as the projects got larger, because they became more strategic, we were even more valuable because they're like, oh, these guys know it and look at all the work they've already done. No one else has done this many projects in this domain. So, you know, it started with craft and then over time it grew into that sector expertise for because we were able to build up a bunch of cases and case studies in a particular industry. And then we kind of continue to ride it from there. Almost every new service line we opened, we would do in, this, in a similar way. We would build it on the top of our current clients. And so showcase this expertise to our current clients that already loved us and said, hey, look, we can do this now. And so then when they had those opportunities, they would put them our way because they trusted us. 
because we had already built the trust. Okay. And uh, now I would like to talk about depreciating and uh, appreciating customers, which you also described in your masterclass. And uh, can you please just uh, tell us about this concept and uh, when should I decide whether I should to invest uh, my efforts, my time on certain clients, and at the same time, uh, try to cut off depreciating customers? When you're a services company, you don't have a lot of assets. You know, you don't have a lot of intellectual property. There's not a product per se that you're selling and you're able to sell over and over. The assets that you have are actually your customer relationships. Your customer relationships are actually what makes the firm value. And, and I would argue the skill sets of your employee base, but even if you've got great skills within your employee base, firms are bought and sold based on the strength of their customer relationships. So those are your assets. Like any asset that you would own, you can have an asset that's growing, like a house, hopefully, or a piece of art or, or some sort of appreciating investment like a stock or bond, or you can have a depreciating asset. You know, it's worth so much, but then every year it's worth a little bit less like a car or a computer. And so I look at customers as, you know, they're typically either appreciating customers, appreciating assets or depreciating assets. And an example of a, an appreciating asset is a customer that will spend money with you year over year. And every year they're going to spend a little bit more. And so those are the companies that you can actually build a firm on top of. Those are the clients you can build a firm on top of. There's other customers that'll come in and maybe they'll have a great project, like first project, but their entire goal is to stop working with you, <laughs> you know, and and ultimately take it in house themselves, or or maybe have you build one thing and then you know then they're going to go away and go do something else, or maybe have you build one thing and then just maintain that one thing and that's it. And those I consider depreciating customers because they come in, they spend a certain amount, but every year they're going to spend less. And so I have found that in order to scale a firm, you've got to be laser focused on the appreciating customers. And the more depreciating customers you work with, the less time you have to invest in those appreciating customers. I've seen a lot of firms spend a lot of time falling in love with get new business, new logos. You know, look at all these new clients we got this year. And to me, that's not necessarily great. I would rather see an existing client base that continues to grow year over year. Maybe you're adding a few every year. That's great. Then every year we, we got a hundred new clients we're working with. It's really hard to grow if that's the case. Back to my friend who was talking about the market. He's running an agency and he is also investing in R&D. He hired a tech consultancy to build a software for his marketing agency. And uh, the way he told me he uh, identified whether he is appreciating customer or depreciating for this tech consultancy was like uh, he's coming to his office and uh, in October he opens the door and uh, there sit like two developers. Then he like, who is this uh, second developer who is this guy and then in december he do the same and now this is a team of 10 and he is like do we need this uh, office maybe we should change the office and uh, rent bigger room because every time i come here we have new people <laughs> so <laughs> this way he and defined he is appreciating customer <laughs> he was well, it, it, you know i and that, that may be true if he's going to spend as much money or more with that company next year and the year after and the year after. I mean, I think the biggest risks for smaller companies is when they have a customer come in, maybe with a big initial contract, but they have no plans to renew it. And so you spend a lot of your time and your energy fulfilling this big contract. And then the next year, it's like, oh, I've got a big hole now I've got to refill. And a lot of companies get in trouble in those situations. I just think it's every deal you got to go in eyes wide open. It's not to say that you are not going to take some projects that may just be one and done. Maybe you're doing it for the case study. 
maybe you're doing it for the experience, but make sure that you're planning and hiring in a way that is thinking 12 to 18 months ahead if that customer is not going to be there anymore. It's not easy to say goodbye to depreciating customer. Do you have any interesting story or uh, experience you can share with us when you said goodbye to depreciating customer? Yeah, well, first I'll say, you know, it's really important to fulfill whatever commitments you make. I think it's important to take care of your, of your customers, regardless of what they're, what bucket they fall into. But yeah, there's a question of whether or not you're going to renew that contract, you know, at the end of the year. I mean, I, I do remember a situation where we had a, you know, being in the app development space back in the early days, like everybody had an app idea. I've heard like literally hundreds of thousands of app ideas over the last 12 years. Um, everybody's got an idea for an app. And the most dangerous people were like rich people that had an idea for an app. Because they'll come in and they'll say, you know, and because we would always try to disqualify people and tell them, hey, look, you know, building an app is not inexpensive. It could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and you got to market it to get people there and, you know, and, and, and. So just don't do it unless you're willing to do it and do it right. But you get some people that are like, oh yeah, no, I got plenty of money. And there was one guy that came in that wanted to build a dating app. I mean, it's interesting. Like the projects are usually interesting, like Greenfield, new projects, like it's fun. But this person had never built software before. He had no idea how it worked. It was incredibly frustrating for the team because he was the one having to make all the decisions. He didn't have a team. You know, he was learning how software is being built as we're going along. Um, it's his personal money. So it's coming out of his checkbook. So he's extra sensitive about all the costs. And so even though it was a nice sized project, it was driving everybody crazy. And it was clear like, okay, this is not going to be an appreciating customer. This is not someone that, you know, is going to come back year over year. So, you know, once we got past the last phase we had committed to, we realized this is not the type of customer we want to be working with. We got really focused then on working with larger enterprise customers, at least midsize, if not large enterprise customers, because they've got recurring budgets every year. You know, they've got the teams to be able to support large software projects. They usually have people in the inside the organization that know how software development works. So, we're not educating everybody from square one all the time. And so those experiences really led us to figuring out who that ideal client profile was. And for us, it wasn't startups. Definitely wasn't rich guys with an app idea. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's so familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all been there. We, we've, all, we've all met that person at some point, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, it's hard to build a business on top of that type of customer, unfortunately. Okay, back to the initial purpose of this podcast. Uh, as you may know, in Ukraine, uh, it became extremely hard right now for tech consultancies, for design agencies to run their businesses because of the war, because of the recession, talent is leaving the country. Could you please describe the most challenging moment in your life, in your business career, and how have you overcame it? Well, first, I will tell you that, you know, I, there's not a story in the world that I could tell you or probably anyone could tell you that could compare to what, you know, the Ukrainian people are going through right now. And so, you know, I'm incredibly sorry that you have to deal with this. And I think it's awful what, what Russia is doing. And um, you know that the U.S. Is, is in your corner. And I just I hope there's more that we, we can do and will do. It's hard for me to, to give you a story that can compare to what, what you're experiencing. But I will tell you about a challenging time. When we first sold the company in 2015, there was like a three-year earnout attached to it. And so, and this is most times when you sell a services company or, you know, a software dev company or an agency, usually there's 
years like an earnout at the end where you know you could maximize the value that you receive for the company if you can keep it growing and there's a limited amount of time to make that happen and so we were you know shortly after we sold company our largest customer was an agriculture company and there were some strange things that were going on macroeconomic front where like price of oil crashed because the price of oil crashed in the US the price of corn crashed because corn is actually used as a source of fuel and so because oil got so cheap corn got really cheap and then affected the agriculture company. And so in a very short amount of time, the agriculture company was losing, you know, salt forecasted that they were going to lose a lot of money. So they just cut like a lot of spend, particularly in the digital domain. And we had close to a hundred people working with them at the time. And so it was like out of nowhere, it blew like up like 30% of our people were like all of a sudden out of a project, out of work. And we were in the middle of this earnout at the same time. So it was like a perfect storm. You know, I remember like after kind of getting over the the shock, it was, you know, we knew we had great people. We knew that there was a market out there. We knew the market was still there. We decided we were not going to lay anybody off. And we got everyone together and said, we have to sell our way out of this. And we can only do it if we all do it as a firm. Like everybody's got to help um, figure out ways for us to sell our way out of this. And so we really did like lobby everybody. I remember we wired up, uh, you know, we had a uh, kind of a central kind of lunch area in the office, you know, in the US, there's, I don't know if this is true in, in Ukraine or you guys even watch ice hockey, but whenever they score a goal in ice hockey, there's like this siren that goes off and this like, you know, music starts playing. And like, so whenever you watch these professional hockey games in the US and someone scores a goal, it's like, you know, the whole stadium kind of goes crazy. Well, we hooked up like this button. So like anytime somebody sold a deal, they would hit this button and the whole office would like, you know, all the sirens would go off and these lights would start going and everyone would start cheering. And we sold our way out of it. I mean, it was like, it wasn't just our sales team. It wasn't just our executive team. Everybody was looking at their networks, looking for opportunities, talking with their current clients. And three months later, we got everybody working again and we continued to grow from there. But it was a team effort, you know, everybody understood that it was up to all of us, you know, to, to be able to save these jobs. And that's really what it was about. It was about saving jobs. And that's kind of how we framed it. And I was really proud of that. I, I just think that was one of those moments where as a team, I think it was just a really fun, cool, it was a horrible experience, but one that we were really thankful we were able to get through. Again, nothing compared to what you all are going through, but uh, hopefully some food for thought. Yeah, that's interesting story. And uh, it means half of your cash flow was dependent on one customer or did they got it wrong? Wasn't quite half, but it was a lot. I mean, it was probably 25% of the business um, mm -hmm. was concentrated in that one customer. And, you know, ironically, when we sold out of it, it was a healthier firm because we didn't have as much customer concentration. But I will tell you, I'll also kind of caveat that with this. A lot of firms are sometimes worried about too much customer concentration. And when you're small, honestly, like you don't have everything with one customer. But like I said, you grow on the back of large customers. When I see a small firm, meaning like less than 100 people, and if there's a lot of customer concentration, but they're good customers, they're really good companies, I think that's fine. I think that's that's just part of growing one of these businesses. I'd rather see a few really good customers than a hundred depreciating customers. 
I had a few more questions to discuss, but we're talking for almost uh, 50 minutes right now. So the last thing I would like to ask you, can you please tell us a bit more about your new venture, about um, the second mountain? As I understand, um, you coach tech consultancies, tech firms, and also as I understand, you also invest in them. If it's true, what's the company size, experience, industry you are looking for? You know, this phase of my career, really trying to give back and teach other people what I've learned. So the second mountain is really focused on helping early stage tech services founders scale their businesses through investment and coaching. You know, generally I'm targeting businesses that are in that 50 to 100 person range. So they've kind of gotten over the initial hump of, you know, startup and are in kind of that scale up territory. And, and that's kind of the target for where I'm investing. But, you know, I'll tell your listeners and I've kind of told everyone that one would like to get on a call and just chat and get some ideas or just share some, maybe some current problems. I'm happy to help any, anyone in your audience if they just need maybe some time or some advice on some different things and don't charge for that. Just happy to give back. If I were you out, uh, better set some criterias like to <laughs> narrow this odd, like number of people who will contact you because in Ukraine, we have a thousand of tech consultancies uh, in range of 50 to 200. So you better change the email <laughs> yeah we'll see we'll see bolo I, for the first time in 22 years i actually have some time so it's <laughs> if someone needs help i'm happy to try to help them yeah it will be wonderful but also i think in ukraine there are like a lot of healthy tech consultancies even uh, we have a war here but there are so many agencies so many companies and like uh, we don't have many many product firms we have uh, it sector growing and uh, this is one of the largest sectors in the country but most of the companies are service based they uh, serve clients from us from europe they do outsourcing outstaffing but i think that within this big number of companies there are a lot of professionals a lot of uh, founders who have a great profit margin uh, healthy business sustainable and maybe it will be interesting for you and for them to chat well i i will tell you well ukraine has a global reputation of having incredible talent and tech technology talent. And that's been true for a long time. So I'm glad that the sector is still still growing and, and I'm glad that there's still firms that are that are successful and what is an incredibly challenging time. So that that makes me happy to hear that. Yeah. And if there's anyone out there that that you know would like to chat, I'm happy to chat with them. And it's great you're doing this and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming. And as usual we have a very fruitful conversation. And uh, I will invite you to visit Ukraine after our victory and uh, we will have a lunch with our listeners and they will tell you how they managed to thrive during the war using your tips i look forward to that day